Greetings, Ice Coffee listeners. We've got some aviation-themed goodness this episode, looking to the future and the past in turn. First up, an interview with Sean McBride, who's planning to take electric flight to Antarctica in coming years, and then an outline of a project I may or may not have on the go. Here's Sean. What first drew your attention to Antarctica? You know, like I think when I was a uh, teenager, I read a book, one of these, you know, um, I suppose it was probably a conspiracy type book about, you know, the the Nazis in Antarctica. And uh, I remember reading about the planes flying over Antarctica and finding lakes that were red and green and blue and ice-free areas, you know. And as a as a teenager, that was quite exciting to me. I thought, oh, why is it all like that when it's um, supposed to be covered in ice? And, uh, you know, over the years, I as I read more and I learnt more, I realised that a lot of the conspiracies are rubbish. But the the reality of Antarctica is that it's an incredibly beautiful place. And I was, uh, I never actually went there for a long, long period of time. And I was up in the Arctic teaching survival. And uh, I remember I was sitting, I was standing on a pair of um, cross-country skis on a frozen river and the, 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 the wind was just blowing gently and it was really quiet. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if if I if I had my life to live over again, I would have liked to have been a polar explorer because it's just such a beautiful environment and so quiet. And you know, I live in Australia, which is not exactly renowned for its um, its uh, cold weather. And so it took me a long time. I, I put kind of Antarctica on the back burner, and then I was in a kind of low point in my life, and a friend of mine gave me this glass jar and said. I want you to put right down on slips of paper and put into there things you'd like to do on your bucket list. And the only thing I really wanted to do was get to Antarctica. So, you know, I'd read about it for years, but I hadn't done anything about it because it is quite an expensive place to get to. And uh, the only thing I put in that glass jar was uh, Antarctica. And I thought, well, maybe it's about time I got my act together and went. And so a few years ago, I... uh, Actually, before I went there, I set up this Captain Antarctica site because of my interest in Antarctica, and I put up posts about Antarctica and about the science and the environment and the wildlife and all that kind of thing. And then I started looking online, and I found that there's this course in New Zealand, a postgraduate certificate in Antarctic studies, and I thought, well, if I'm going to pay the money anyway, I might as well get some sort of qualification out of it. And the beauty of that course was that as well as uh, learning a huge amount about Antarctica, you also got to go there. So I did that, and I ended up in Antarctica on the Ross Ice Shelf camping, uh, doing glaciological uh, experimentation and uh, uh, tagging Weddell seals and uh, what else we did, Meteor- meteorology, and uh, looked into the uh, old huts that were built by the early explorers and stayed in Scott Base, the New Zealand uh, Antarctic base, and just had a, a fantastic time. So yeah, that's pretty much the story, I suppose. You mentioned that you were training people in survival in the Arctic. What was the, the path to that as a career? Well, when I was, uh, when I was about 15, I went, uh, well, even earlier than that, I, I had a book that I was given about 
the American Book of Camping, I think it was, and I used to read it from front to back and back again. And I was really interested in it. And when I was about 15, I started solo camping by myself in the hills above Wollongong, where I, where I was living. <clears throat> and uh, that sort of grew into an interest in how could I spend more time out in the bush without having to lug a pack with lots of gear in it. So I started looking into bush food and all that kind of thing. And I remember sitting up on this mountaintop, probably when I was about 17, thinking, what am I going to do? with my life and what what really interests me. And it was kind of staring me in the face at the time, but I didn't realize it. And that was uh, this love of learning about the bush and survival. Uh, so there were a few hits and misses along the way, but when I was about 24, I actually started teaching it. And uh, I loved it. Yeah, I had my own survival school and I, I taught all over the world and I taught for about three decades, I suppose, until the the novelty wore off. But the reason I was in the Arctic was that because the Swedish government had flown me up there to teach uh, survival instructors from 14, military survival instructors from 14 different countries, uh, partly because my background was special forces, but partly, uh, but mainly because I was a survival instructor from Australia. So it had some novelty value, I suppose. Not, not that a lot of things from Australia were applicable to the Arctic, but... Um, I managed to get by. And what are you up to with Captain Antarctica as we speak? The, the whole idea behind Captain Antarctica is to turn people onto Antarctica to help them to understand how Antarctica impacts the rest of the world and hopefully to get uh, encourage people to go there to fall in love with it so that they'll want to protect it. And already, you know, the uh, Western Antarctica is melting. A lot of the glaciers are starting to go. Uh, but luckily, on the other hand, Eastern Antarctica is still okay to some degree, and uh, there's increased snowfall there. But it's just a fascinating place, so I want people to know about it. And along the lines with that, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm planning down the track, because the technology is not there yet, I'm planning down the track of flying a, an electric aircraft from Scott Base or the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole, which is about, uh, well, 1,400, 1,600 kilometres. Now, that's outside the range of a, a battery. Uh, hydrogen might do it, but I'm still waiting for the technology to catch up. And so to that end, I went out and got my pilot's licence and I bought a plane, as you do, and uh, I've just been getting the hang of it. It's quite a fast little plane. It has a range at the moment of about 1,000 kilometres and uh, a ceiling of 16,000 feet and travels at 220 kilometres an hour. So if I could get the same sort of um, specs from hydrogen or batteries, uh, it would probably take me about eight hours, I suppose. Let's say eight to 10 hours to do that trip. And the main reason for doing that is, one, to demonstrate the power or the value of renewables, and secondly, to bring attention to Antarctica. Uh, because if Antarctica goes, it's really going to screw the rest of us. And you've mentioned some of the challenges that that, that journey poses you. What, 
what do you see as the logical sequence or the timeline for solving them in turn? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I stay in touch with a lot of, well, I didn't say a lot, but a number of people around the world who are working on battery technology and hydrogen. And I was talking to the head of uh, Zero Avia uh, a little while back, um, who thought it was a pretty interesting idea and he'd given me some hints about things to do. I'd also spoken to Shell and BP. Uh, well, no, just Shell at this stage because Shell has uh, has a long history of a connection with Antarctica in that they were providing the fuel of paraffin for uh, Shackleton and Mawson and others to go to Antarctica. And I thought, well, it'd be a good idea now that Shell has seen the light and is moving towards renewables and away from fossil fuels that uh, they might be interested in it. And they they were interested in the project because it fitted in with their um, their guidelines for the way they're going now. Uh, it just hasn't quite gotten the, the traction yet uh, as I'm not, I don't think I'm quite speaking to the right people. So that's that's an ongoing thing. And, and the reason I was talking to them was because in the meantime, until the technology is okay for the batteries or the hydrogen, um, I, I have to use, you know, fossil fuels and um, Shell uh, would be able to provide them. And they're also working on sustainable fossil fuels, uh, not fossil fuels, sustainable fuels now. So uh, that's that's one of the challenges, simply um, getting sort of the backing of people and getting in my head around the technology. There's a guy I know who's, who's actually uh, converted my type of plane, which is a Whitman W8 Tailwind, um, an old design, but a very um, advanced plane for its time. Uh, he's converted it to electric already, but Again, you know, uh, electric engines, uh, electric engines are quite good, but the battery system is such that you might, if you're lucky, you might get an hour and a half out of the battery system in a plane, and I need a lot more than that. So the, it's, the technological advancements are needed, but I've also spoken to the Australian Antarctic Division about the idea of even with batteries that would only last an hour and a half, uh, of reenacting Mawson and uh, Sir Hubert Wilkins, uh, two Australians who were the first people to be flying in the Antarctic way back in the 1920s. And it's coming up in 1928, 29. It will be the 100th anniversary of their flight. So uh, the Australian Antarctic Division showed some interest in, in that idea as well. So. Uh, you know, it's it's basically a case of my getting more publicity for what I'm doing, for building up my brand, if you want to call it that, uh, and to get people on board who can assist in getting me there. That's incredible. And I'll probably edit this out because I haven't made any sort of announcement yet, but I met Chris Turney in Sydney last week to advance an idea that I've had to celebrate the centenary of Sir Hubert Wilkins' first flight from Deception Island. Oh, and, really? Well, it was actually Jeff Maynard who wrote the book Wings of Ice, who right. I was having coffee with him one day, and he said, someone should celebrate that centenary. I said, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. And he said, that should be you. Said, oh, fuck. 
because I've never done anything <laughs> like that before. No pressure. <laughs> but um, yeah, I started casting about for folks that might be interested and I'm gradually assembling a team and it won't be as cool as what you're doing with zero emissions because the the intention at the moment is to use twin otters to replicate the flight. The, uh, yep, the, right. the, the key outcomes I want from it are for Sir Hubert Wilkins to get some recognition that I think he, he, he lacks oh, for sure. as a pioneer and to Absolutely photograph the brilliant. glaciers that he photographed on that flight for, oh, the, that's great. for the century comparison. We're probably going to bring it forward five years. So it'll actually be 95 years just because to me, the climate change story is so urgent that yeah, that five-year five year lag could dent the value of the information that we bring back. But um, yeah, Chris Turney's contribution is bringing in the glaciologists and the lichenologists that would be able yep. to land at those glacial foots and and get the actual geological clock that will show the story of those glacial recessions. Have so, uh, have you got? Um, oh, look, I think I think it's a great idea, and you know they would kind of tie together. I mean, uh, they do. You're right yeah. about pace of change in that if you did that in in um, the ninety fifth year and I did it in the hundredth year, uh, we'd we'd get a progression of the development i suppose of what's been happening that's um, really cool and you know there is and you're right there is an urgency about it that's just that from an electric engine point of view uh you know it's going to take time i don't know if it'll take i don't think know if it will take the next seven or eight years it might be because there's there's new new um advances coming out every week so uh it may be sooner but wh where would you land with the twin otters uh, at the glacial foots uh if if there's enough smooth ice, those twin otters, their performance is such that you can put them on a fairly short run of snow. So okay. if you get some bass pilots or some Ken Boric aviation pilots into the yep. mix, perhaps through Antarctic logistics and expeditions, I think yep. you're, you're pretty well sorted for, for making the best use of those airframes. An alternative idea which would involve less hard science was to charter a Basler 67 and just make the flight, just hit the waypoints of the flight and take the photographs. And that, sure. that has appeal because it's easier. Yeah. Much easier. It, it, it turns it more into a, a sightseeing flight that sort of any, anyone could, could mount. And I think with the folks yeah. in my contact list, we can do, we can do better than that. So, I'm really excited to hear you talking about following Sir Hubert's flight because I don't I don't particularly care about getting mileage for myself out of this. I, I think the project has merit regardless. I don't care who does it. I just care oh, that it gets done. So it's really exciting to me to hear you speak about it like that. Well, and same for you. I mean, anything that brings attention to Sir Hubert Wilkins, I mean, what an incredible man and forgotten. You know, he was... He was the most famous explorer adventurer of his age in the 30s. And how many people know about him today? Well, Jeff Maynard has an interesting idea that Australians work on a pigeonhole history framework, that if you've got someone in that pigeonhole already, then you can move on and think about cricket. So <laughs> we've got our famous well, who's, explorer, who's that's in that Mawson. Pigeon, who's in that pigeonhole? Mawson. 
Mawson. But and but even even Mawson, you know, I I often toyed with the idea of going around and just interviewing people on the street and say, you know, do you know who Sir Douglas Mawson is? And I suspect the most people probably wouldn't know. I think certainly he's he's fallen away in the popular imagination in the time since we had paper money and he was on the hundred dollar. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I, I sort of see Mawson as the people's pigeonhole person and Philip Law as the one that occupies the imaginations of the people that actually go to Antarctica through the division. Right. But Wilkins is the, the one that sort of lost out. And it's partly because he turned his back on Australia because he kept getting snubbed and rebuffed because the government kept listening to Mawson and Mawson saw Wilkins as a showman rather than a, an explorer. Ah, uh, right. And it's partly that he wasn't particularly fussed about PR. He got the job done. But he... which, which is funny because I, I would have never seen him as a showman. It's funny that Mawson saw him as one because he seemed to be much more much more interested in, in setting up weather stations around the world to help people. That's, that's exactly right. He, he could do showmanship. He, he was quite a good photographer and cinematographer, and he could make his own flyers when he was doing a, a slideshow. You know, I've got yep. one, of his, one of his flyers from his time in New Zealand. Oh, wow. But he wasn't driven to PR in the way that Admiral Byrd was. And he wasn't as canny about using it, I think, even as Mawson was. Mawson was begrudgingly forced to engage in PR for fundraising and mm. to take endorsements. But he understood it as the path forward where Wilkins sort of did the bare minimum necessary to go out and get the job done. And when yeah, he was working yeah. with Lincoln Ellsworth, he barely did any. He just got his head down and sort of the details because he no longer had to chase money. Ellsworth uh, chase pay money, for those yeah. flights. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, he pops up in so many places. I'm, you know, because I'm, I'm flying now, I was sitting here with a, a few friends the other day and we watched the film uh, Smithy about Sir, Sir um, Kingsford Smith. And Wilkins pops up because Wilkins sold the Southern Cross to Kingsford <laughs> Smith. He's, he's yeah. everywhere. You know, he's involved in everything. And and Bird, Bird was, uh, I wouldn't say the word was scared of him, but Bird was threatened by oh, Wilkins certainly. Yeah. all the time because he was such a dominant figure in, in adventure and exploration. I, th I think Bird was scared of him. I think he saw Wilkins' competence in contrast to his own reliance on others to get stuff done as a threat. I think he saw the 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 lean expeditions that Wilkins put together contrasted with his own lumbering, oh, all singing, all dancing expeditions. Yes, backed by the government and, and uh, a cast of thousands. Yeah. Um, Wilkins could be mobile to the point that he, he shifted operations from the Ross Sea to Deception Island without much fuss. And he, he looked set to succeed and take Bird's glory. And I think that really put the wind up Bird and perhaps forced his hand in, in some time-based time decisions that he might otherwise have shown a bit more caution. Yes, and I, I suspect a lot of that's got to do with um, basically, uh, you know, the competition for funding. Even though, you know, at times Bird was backed by the government, he was also 
had his um, his own private exhibition expeditions that uh, required sponsorship. So I suppose you know everyone's competing for sponsorship. Um, Wilkins was a threat for that. Definitely, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I was speaking, and you might know more about this, you know, because I, I don't consider myself an expert on um, on Wilkins, though I, I have a, a big interest in him. But uh, I was talking to um, Chad Carey the other day, who runs Chimu Adventures. Now he's he's running a um, the first flight. Don't know if it's the first flight ever uh, of a commercial plane to the South Pole. I think there might have been one from South America 15 years ago, but um, it'll be the first flight from Australia to the South Pole by a commercial aircraft in that's, November. That's the Chimu Expeditions um, Initiative. Yes, that's yes. right. And uh, anyway, I was talking to him and he said that he he saw the remains of Wilkins' hangar in Deception Island. And I didn't even realise that um, he had built a hangar there. Do you know anything about that? I understand that in the various visits Wilkins made to the area, he made use of sheds that were part of the Hectoria whaling station at Deception uh, Island. Right, so he may not have built them the, himself. The hangar that still exists there was established by the British Antarctic Survey to uh, house their otters. So there is a very substantial hangar at the island and it, it's holding up quite well to the decades. Right. But um, everything else on site there is a remnant from the from the Hectoria whaling station. The, uh, the other okay. bass buildings were destroyed in the volcano and oh, yes. dismantled. And the the graveyard got washed downhill in a lahar. And yeah, the place is geologically exciting to the point that the hangar is probably the only building you could still shelter in. Wow, that's interesting. I, I was going to do a post about it. Uh, I might still do a post about it, but uh, the, the connection with Wilkins was enough for me, especially if he, he had built it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, you, I'm, I expect that you probably know a lot more about him than I do. And there's so much to his story that uh, over the next few years, I'll have to read more about it. Uh, but also I have to, I have to follow up on the Mawson story too, of using the, um, uh, I can't remember now if it was a gypsy moth or um, whatever that they flew. He had a gypsy moth aboard the Discovery. Yes. That, that did the the reconnaissance flights for that voyage in 1929 through 1931. Yeah. And uh, a Vickers REP at Cape Denison that uh, arrived without its wings. Ah, uh, yes, yes, the um, the air tractor. <laughs> Uh, you know they they found um, they found a chunk of that and it's now in the Mawson uh, the huts. That's correct, Tasmania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that stuff. I love that they keep finding stuff down there. The the flight that you have planned, I think, stands out to me as the the most innovative thing anyone's done or proposed doing in Antarctica in a long time. I'm really excited about it. Oh, thank you. And, uh, just the, the cross-linking that we've just had about Wilkins encourages maintaining contact. But Absolutely. even before that, I was so excited about your project. I'm, I'm just really looking forward to following your progress and seeing how this develops because this is uh, a new take on a theme that actually has applications beyond itself 
there's lots of people going down to Antarctica to be the first to climb this summit or to be the first to take this particular route and they're sort of running out of firsts you know soon it'll be crossing the crossing the Ross Ice Shelf by pogo stick which is a a long-standing joke in my circle but this project has real world application that is also tremendously interesting to me well, if, uh, you know, what, whatever I, I learn from this, I'm not a hoarder of information. Whatever I learn from this in the process will be passed on to people too. And hopefully, you know, I was thinking about it the other day, you know, we're looking at uh, aviation is, is a big contributor to um, uh, emissions into the atmosphere. And uh, people forget about private flying as well. I mean, I know commercial flying is the big thing, but you know, there are there are thousands and thousands of um, small aircraft out there that are also doing the same thing. And if we can convert over to um, electric with that, the only thing that's stopping them at the moment is the fact that people like to fly distance. And at the moment, the electric aircraft are basically being taken up by uh, flying schools where they don't really need more than probably an hour or so of training at a time. Uh, and I think that's going to change quite dramatically over the next few years because they're looking at all these alternatives to the standard lithium-ion battery. And as I said before, the breakthroughs are being made every every week. Uh, it's just going to take time for them to work their way to commercialisation. So, you know, it's an interesting time to be around. And uh, if, if we could convert uh, private aviation to electric, you know, the sooner the better uh, in terms of helping the world. Thank you so much for your time and just for having the insight and the gumption to try something new. I, I, I feel so in awe when someone takes on a project of this sort of nature and to see someone doing it in a space where I feel adventure has been spinning its wheels for the last couple of decades, it's really inspiring. Well, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate that. I, I guess the fact that I'm in it doesn't, I don't, I can't step back from it to look at it from that point of view. I just think, oh, yeah, well, this is a challenge. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. I'll just keep working towards it. Well, even the, the vision has value in that sense. Um, where can people find you if they are looking for you online? Uh, well, uh, they can check out my website, which is just uh, captainantarctica.com.au, or they can join me on Facebook. Just again, look for Captain Antarctica. Um, and I'm also on Instagram under captain.antarctica, at captain.antarctica. So there's a, there's a few options out there. And um, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not selling anything except um, providing information to people to hopefully turn them on to Antarctica, and um, I hope more and more people get the opportunity to go there to to just experience it. You know, because it's uh, it's an amazing place, and I think it changes people. Oh, doubtless, yeah. I, I don't think it's possible to to experience that scale of landscape and indifference to human life without it having an effect on you not everyone not everyone has the same positive effect that i feel it had on me but yeah it's impossible to not have something 
I, I said, I, I've often said to people that Antarctica is like, is like a mirror and it reflects back at you what, what you might be missing. And, uh, and you're right about it doesn't affect everyone the same way. It's interesting. I did some research a while back, actually, while I was doing that postgraduate certificate. Um, and it, it turns out that the, the Chinese aren't as affected by it generally as, say, people in the West. And part of that is because there's a certain there's a certain attitude towards wilderness amongst the Chinese, uh, which is more fear based, you know, because it's a bit frightening to be out in the wilderness. Whereas people in the West have this kind of uh, much more positive view of wilderness. And I thought that was quite interesting. Well, there's probably a, an entire department's worth of PhDs you know, yes. tracking tracking the literature regarding wilderness in the last couple of centuries and seeing how that plays out in the literature arising from the different national programs. Absolutely, absolutely. And and actually down at the University of Canterbury, they're, they're doing that kind of research. They're trying to understand people's relationship to Antarctica and whether people do actually become Antarctic ambassadors once they've experienced the Antarctic. And uh, I don't think the... the Evidence is clear yet, but uh, they're still working on it. Hey, um, you're uh, you're obviously really, really quite knowledgeable on Antarctica. What, where did your interest come from? Oh, it started very early. Uh, I think being aware of Australia's Antarctic heritage as a child from just watching documentaries and then Mawson's face on the hundred dollar note. Not that I saw many of those in the <laughs> right. uh, A book, the Reader's Digest book of Antarctica. Oh, really? That uh, borrowed from the library and, and got many a fine for, for keeping out too long. <laughs> uh, just kept getting reinforced by little snippets here and there. You know, you'd meet a teacher that had traveled as part of the AAD or some military punter that had worked on the boats. Um, yep. Weepix cards from the Dick Smith Explorer. And it just kept building this picture. And that helped inform career choices into marine science because I thought there might be more than the average career opportunities to get to Antarctica. And it's, well, there was the interest in marine science generally, but just the particular branches that I started following up, it's, it's, you can see the pattern that I was sort of angling to position myself mm. to, to find my way south. Nice one. And that came about in 2000 and that, the, the opportunity to go south came about in 2004 with a dive program through the University of Otago. Oh, wonderful. And uh, worked at Scott Base as a diver for two summer seasons. Okay. Then started podcasting about Antarctic history, partly just out of a, a sense that I wasn't going to get back. I, I'd gone into a branch of my career that didn't offer those sorts of opportunities. And mm. I, I was concerned, you know, maybe I'll lose touch. So yep. I started the Antarctic History podcast to feel that sense of connection and to share the passion and the same thing as you, just that drive to want more people to know about Antarctica and to appreciate it. Oh, good one. And that led to work in the tourist industry and that fell apart last year for various reasons. But, oh, yes. Um, uh, yep just always always thinking about the place and always trying to find a way to expand my experience of it and to share it with other people. Uh, exactly. That really sums up for me as well. I keep working out ways of getting back. I was supposed to, it's like you with the tourist industry, I was supposed to be lecturing on ships 
last year and that all died uh, before it happened, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm not sure what the industry is going to look like after um, we reach whatever equilibrium COVID sees us reach. But um, Although from from what I've been uh, reading, it looks like there's a a rebound now that is... um, uh, it's looking quite good for the future, at least in terms of the, at least in terms of the cruise ships. I'm so pleased with how this has played out. I think I won't edit much out. I think I'll make this the announcements on the podcast series that I'm angling to to get South to recreate Sir Hubert Wilkins' flight, and just whatever I can do that adds power to your elbow. Um, you can expect to call on me when you need to. Oh, that's wonderful, Matt. And and same goes for me. If if you could, maybe if you could send me a little bit about your plan with the 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 uh, Basler plane or the um, the sorry the Twin Otter. Um, if if it's not premature on your part, um, I can I can do up a post about it. Oh, I'd be really grateful for that. And yeah, um, yeah obviously I'll I'll be scouring your website for for images to uh, append to the the release notes for this episode okay that's great yeah um where are you based now i'm in melbourne melbourne okay um i was just thinking um you know we've probably both got individual contacts that would probably be useful to each other down the track so if i think of people i'll i'll let you know oh likewise yeah yeah, I um I don't know if you met have you ever met um Sid Kirkby? I'm sorry, I missed that one. Have you ever met Sid Kirkby? No, I haven't. Sid is a pretty amazing guy. He supposedly he he says he doesn't know if it's true or not, but I've heard it described. I think I think um uh Phil Law uh said about him that Sid Kirkby has explored more of Antarctica than Amundsen Scott and Shackleton all put together <laughs> and uh and it might be true you know he was a surveyor back in the 50s and used to go on these massive dog sledding expeditions across Antarctica and he's still around he's 88 I think it is and uh very interesting character so maybe if you're ever up here in Brisbane uh I'll introduce you to him oh I'd be grateful for that thanks uh, my pleasure my pleasure and um have you read Wings of Ice by um Jeff Maynard I- I didn't know about it. I read another. That's that's a Wilkins a bi- a biography. It it covers a lot of the polar aviators, but it certainly focuses attention on Wilkins that is much much deserved and contrasts him a lot with Admiral Byrd. Oh, cool! I, Jeff, um, Jeff just... Maynard's written three books about Wilkins now, so that was the first. The second is called The Unseen Anzac about his time as a photographer. In yeah, the First was, World War. That was another amazing part of his history. Oh, isn't it? Yeah, it just keeps unfolding. I know. Like how many, like one lifetime, how much he crammed into it. <laughs> amazing. The third is called Antarctica's Lost Aviator, which is nominally about Lincoln Ellsworth, but just Wilkins is such a, a powerful character in his story that yes. it really reads as a book <laughs> book about Wilkins. I'll look, I'll, I'll look them up. I've, um, I've, I've, discovered, um, I've discovered podcasts which are... Um, uh, allow me to listen to, or no, sorry, audio books, which allows me to listen to books while I'm driving. Yep. And um, I'll see if I can chase those up because 
I've only read one biography of Wilkins. I knew a fair bit about him before, but um, and that biography just kind of opened up all the amazing stuff about him. So I'd certainly like to look at some of these others. Great. Well, thanks again for your time, Sean. I think this has been, um, yeah, a real eye-opener and um, quite valuable for me. Um, no, hope, no worries, man. it's been interesting for you. Oh, it has been. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have made the connection. <laughs> Take care and, um, yeah, more power Thanks. to your elbow, mate. Take Thank care. you. And let's let's stay in touch about these plans. Oh, definitely, definitely. Cool. Thanks a lot. So, as mentioned in the interview, I've been thinking a lot about Sir Hubert Wilkins of late and trying to map a path towards celebrating his legacy and photographing the same glaciers he flew over a century ago. Jeff Maynard first seeded the idea when we caught up on the Williamstown foreshore immediately after the end of Melbourne's 2020 COVID lockdown period. It's too good an idea not to follow up on it, and while I'm extremely lazy, there are some things that will wind my clockwork up and set me in motion, and Jeff found a very good example of exactly that. So I kicked the idea around for six months or so, eventually contacting Professor Chris Turney, an earth scientist at the University of New South Wales and a veteran of several Antarctic projects that required a lot of fundraising and logistical inventiveness. You might recall I mentioned his book, 1912, The Year the World Discovered Antarctica, as a key reference in episodes about Shirase and Filchner, and also as the second book I narrated for the vision impaired through Robert de Graw at Vision Australia. Professor Turney liked the idea and suggested we reconvene in the new year to discuss it further. This led to my heading to Sydney last month. Actually, taking my son to Antarctica in 2019 led me to heading to Sydney last month, as I promised to spend some time travelling with my daughter while awaiting an opportunity to take her south as a way of giving her a bit of adventure time too. She selected Sydney as the destination, as that city holds her attention, but in between doing the full roster of Sydney tourist things, I caught up with Professor Turney and pored over maps and discussed possibilities. A concern about timing came to the fore. If the opportunity to overfly Wilkins and Ireland's route offered scope to compare glacial states and highlight a century of climate change, would waiting five years to sync up with the actual 100-year anniversary deprive the narrative of five years' worth of impact? Given the bulk of the stories already told in receding ice and newly exposed rock, the extra five years won't make much difference in the picture, but might make some difference if it adds to the overall climate emergency messaging. I decided the 2028 centenary, while a nice, big, round number, only holds value because people get excited about large, base 10 numbers, largely as a result of nature working in primes, giving us two upper limbs, each tipped with five digits. The 95th anniversary would likely suffice as a scientific and historical marker, and anyone interested could celebrate the centenary five years on from there. So the 2022-23 Austral summer became the main talking point. In addition to photographing the glaciers and comparing the present images with those Wilkins took from the Lockheed Vega, Chris suggested putting geologists and lichenologists on the ground to collect samples sufficient to put a geological clock on any rock formations shown as exposed during the intervening century. I didn't know anything about cosmogenic nuclide production during that afternoon confab, but the idea seemed sound and I began bugging contacts at Geoscience Australia for more information.
Dr. Phil O'Brien, neighbour, colleague, and with Alison, co-babysitter to our boy in his toddler years, gave me the basics of the physical process and how it's measured. Phil's always been a great science communicator and reliably helped me understand what the 700-odd people at Geoscience Australia got up to within our shared commuting arrangements during my three years in Canberra. Even more helpfully, Phil gave me the contact details of one of Australia's leading cosmogenic nuclide tracking academics, Professor Dwayne White at the Australian National University, who very kindly spent some time corresponding with me and hooking me up with papers and blogs sufficient to build on the basic understanding Phil gave me over the phone, to the point I could discuss the topic with other people I wanted to get interested in the project. Another hurdle, that of auspicing the project, arose at that point, and I would speak to the topic at length, but it may become moot. Listen on. I've since discussed the project with a number of people who could make the most of the opportunities the initiative offers in spreading the narratives involved far and wide and compellingly, and a couple of people who could help make it happen. But the number of hurdles increases the more I assess the outlook. Antarctic logistics experts cite the difficulty of working in the area in question posed by the weather, the costs of staging fuel and people to the sites of interest, and the dangers of working from unsanitised runways. The weather affecting the eastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula is particularly problematic. Early in the austral summer, the winds are all over the shop because of the interface between two climate systems meeting over the dynamic uplift the peninsula constitutes. Late in the austral summer, the breakout of sea ice in the Weddell Sea makes fogs ruinous to long-distance visibility. These factors make the area one of the least aerially visited coastal spans of the whole continent, and no sanitised airfields exist there. I'd not come across that word in this context before, but sanitised keeps cropping up as denoting airfields of known surface conditions, usually involving regular visits, and perhaps some fuel depot there, and if not a met observer on site, then an automated weather bot sending satellite updates about local atmospheric conditions. Add to these concerns that there's only the runway at Frey Station to act as a proxy for the Deception Island start point Wilkins and Ireson used in 1928, and the picture continues to complicate. Getting to Frey Station isn't easy, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. Convincing the locals to put up with a team staying there for as long as it takes for the weather to offer a good shot at making the necessary flights safely makes that challenge a few factors harder, both in terms of negotiations with Chilean station management and the cost of putting people on site for a potentially extended period away from their day-to-day lives. And with no guarantee the necessary conditions will arise in the time people and airframes can stay on site. While the circumstances haven't changed, the machinery has, and that Sir Hubert and Ben Olsen overcame the hurdles with late 1920s wooden monocoque aircraft with no radios or navigation instruments beyond a magnetic compass and Sir Hubert on the sextant only scales up the already high regard I held those men in. If their 1928 flight track coincided with those of present-day operations, it might be a simple matter of adding a team and their kit to an existing flight schedule and sucking up the large bill, but expanding such operations into a largely unvisited area is an order of magnitude more complicated and expensive. No one's yet said it's impossible, but it's clearly going to be very, very expensive to get anyone to commit people machinery, and consumables to the initiative. So now, 
I face the question of whether to push ahead and try to get something done, or to pull the pin before the real heavy lifting of organising such a project sets in. I want to celebrate Sir Hubert's aviation milestone, but given he wanted to open up the Antarctic as a means to better understand climate, should I really commit a load of burnt fossil fuel to highlighting that legacy? The farm he grew up on, destroyed by drought in his childhood, now lies outside the land considered arable. In 1865, South Australia Surveyor-General George Goida made a map delineating the areas of the state prone to drought and those receiving regular rain, based on his long horseback traverse of the region studying vegetation distributions. Goida's line served as a reliable measure of what types of farming could sustain where, and those who bet against its insights, largely based on a brief flourishing of plant life north of the line, usually lost out when the southern oscillation saw rainfall patterns revert to the mean. Agricultural programs in South Australia recognise that with changing rhythms of rainfall, Goida's line is gradually moving south, forcing farmers to adapt to new conditions by changing their practices, crops or stock to keep abreast of the environmental variables affecting them. The property on which Sir Hubert Wilkins spent his early years now lies above Goida's line, slowly shifting southward. Sir Hubert's career-long push to establish meteorological stations at high latitudes, if acted on when he first called for such visionary investment, may have helped us identify and quantify the problems we now face earlier than we did, and I doubt he'd applaud anyone contributing to those problems simply to make some noise about his legacy. I still see merit in the climate change aspect of the project. Taking the photographs and gathering the samples and making as much mileage from the associated results as possible offers a neat scientific avenue down which to chase, but is time, energy and money best spent in that manner? If the breakup of the Larsen A and the Larsen B ice shells, the latter visible in real time and projected across our home screens in satellite imagery, didn't convince climate change deniers that the Industrial Revolution wasn't all good, will any further climate insights available in the Wilkins Memorial vein make any real difference? I have doubts. I doubt they're as good as other people's doubts, but I've always been worried I was doing imposter syndrome incorrectly. Letting go of an opportunity that came your way can be painful and disappointing, but if it's the right thing to do, that's what you should do. Maybe the story here is that walking away from a more exciting story can still be important. Just because something seems exciting and interesting or fun doesn't make it worth doing, particularly when the stated goals are undercut by the mode and method you set out to apply. I'll continue talking to people about how this project might be made to play out safely and with the best possible outcomes. It's presently only cost me a few copies of Jeff's book, Wings of Ice, and the postage necessary to get it into the hands of the people who I want to see involved. And it's interesting to talk to the logisticians who could make things happen if the money ever came together. But I won't cry bitter tears if this episode is the last you ever hear from me on the matter. Sir Hubert deserves better recognition than he receives, particularly in Australia. But it's not my responsibility to make that happen. There is a story to tell written in the rocks exposed by the past century of glacial recession on the eastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula, but someone else might be able to find a safer and more efficient means to take the samples and photographs necessary to tell it. 
Watch this space. But not too closely. Shouting out this episode to Lucille Cutting, who graciously spent an afternoon with my family at T-Mag in Hobart. Take care and appreciate your coffee.